Or if you don't, you'll have to listen to me again. <laughs> <laughs> It's called Theravadan, and uh, Theravadan means the teaching of the elders, and <laughs> it's one of the 18 traditions which remained after the Buddha's uh, Parinibbana, after his death, um, pretty soon, or about, or how soon, about 250 years later, uh, 18 traditions split up everybody had their own ideas and because some of the ideas were so absurd didn't have anything to do with the Buddha's teachings they all died they didn't remain and this was one that remained and um, this tradition uses what is called the Pali Canon the uh, discourses of the Buddha as they have been um, transmitted to us in writing they were written down about 250 years after the Buddha's Parinibbana, which was at the Third Council of Arahants. And because Pali doesn't have an alphabet and never did, they were written down in the Sinhalese alphabet in Sri Lanka. And that's where the idea comes from in Sri Lanka that they are sort of the custodians of this Dhamma. And they were written down on ola leaves, which are palm leaves, with a stylo. A stylo looks like a screwdriver. It's a metal um, instrument with which you can scratch into palm leaves, which are very soft, the palm leaves which have been treated um, to be um, even and uh, uh, cut, usually in this width and about this long. And then you scratch the letters into it and then the juice of berries was taken because ink wasn't there and then the whole palm leaf was covered with the juice of the berries and then wiped off and the juice remained in those scratches and that the whole of the um, Pali canon was written down like that and of course they crumble they keep crumbling and uh, disappearing these palm leaves they are not very uh, permanent they're extremely impermanent and uh, so this thing is being done over and over again and there is a monastery in Sri Lanka who does that all the time rewriting on palm leaves well we didn't have to do that now it's all printed on paper but this is a tradition that there should be a Pali canon always on palm leaves so it's being rewritten all the time on that and uh, we've got walls and walls of glass cases filled with these um, uh, palm leaf uh, books they usually have a cover on top and on the bottom um, sometimes uh, just uh, more cardboard but often very beautiful studded with uh, uh, jewelry and um, because they always uh, dis- uh, disintegrate so they've got all the old ones that are disintegrating in those cupboards and then they write new ones all the time and that's one thing that you cannot buy I was there when some tourists tried to buy some of those palm leaves in the, in the cupboards. I mean, that, as far as that goes, you can buy practically anything for money, but that you can't buy. I was very pleased when the monk refused <laughs> to sell any of that. So, um, 
uh, it is the oldest tradition of any of the Buddhist traditions and um, it has a reputation uh, to be um, very uh, severe, dry um, and uninspiring and uh, because there are other traditions particularly uh, Tibetan tradition which is um, far more colorful and far more intricate and so because sometimes this one is taught very uh, um, in a very dry way it has that reputation it's also called not just the Pali Canon it's called the tea pitika tea means three pitika means basket the three baskets and the reason for that is that when this thing was written down on the palm leaf they were, it was divided into be carried around in three baskets and uh, the three baskets are the Sutta Pitika which are the discourses of which we were using one here then the Vinya Pitika which are the, is the uh, rules of the order for monks and nuns which is also studded with funny and less funny stories and um, more maybe peculiar than funny some are funny and uh, has a lot of um, a teaching and it also is not just the, or the rules of the order it's got all sorts of explanations why that rule was made and from that we can, the rule, Buddha made the rules as he went along in the beginning when there was a Sangha there was not a single rule it was just all he did was said ehi bhikkhu or ehi bhikkhuni that means come monk or come nun that was it finished and nowadays we've got an elaborate ordination ceremony and um, which actually some of that started already in the Buddha's time because too many came and he couldn't you know attend to all of them and uh, then as he went along he had to make more and more rules because more and more people came and the more people you get the more nonsense was being perpetrated and so he made the rules as he went along people are notoriously always um, on the verge of doing something which is not uh, proper so these rules then finally amounted to 297 for the monks and 311 for the nuns and uh, some of them of course have no validity in today's day and age because we wouldn't even know what what it is all about one of them that um, I always use as an example is you're not allowed to carry black wool on your head further away from a village than um, 20 kilometers <laughs> black wool on my head so um, <laughs> I mean that's innumerable like that um, the reason for that is in those days black wool was valuable and uh, you weren't supposed to cart it away and, uh, and people were trapped carting stuff on their heads I mean it's just you know Maybe if it was today, he would say, well, don't, don't ride in a Mercedes or something like that. I don't know. You know, something like that, luxury of some sort or other. Not quite sure. Nobody's sure exactly. So it's, a, it's some of the things I have to do with the culture that he was living in. And, um, I mean, many have to do with that. But all of them are designed to uh, encourage a behavior which is... Um, modest and um, exemplary and um, not um, uh, harmless and uh, uh, behavior which would not uh, be a bother to lay people and that's the two things the third
that was not that that possum again, <laughs> was it? <laughs> you can't do that, Kenny. <laughs> it's um, uh, the third one, Jyabidamba, and. Uh, because of that, because it is called the Tipitika, and because there were three baskets, it is cons- concluded from that that the Abhidhamma was also taught by the Buddha. And the story goes that it was taught, taught by the Buddha in the um, Tatimsa he- uh, heaven to his mother, who had lo- was long dead. Well, uh, scholars today are, I think, mostly com- in unison in saying it's impossible. Nobody talks like that. In the Buddha time, in the Buddha's time, nobody wrote anything down. It's not because they couldn't write, but uh, religious teachings were um, uh, uh, transmitted from teacher to disciple uh, through all transmission. So it was uh, called, considered to be sacrilegious to write it down. So um, nobody can talk like the Abhidhamma is written. So um, it is considered that. At the Third Council of Arahants, the, uh, some of the monks made a um, compilation of the Buddha's teachings out of his discourses and were able to make seven books of the Abhidhamma out of that um, with later commentaries and sub-commentaries which contain all of that which is in the suttas but on a level of impersonality now in the suttas the Buddha says I and you and uh, we and uh, don't do this, do that and if you do this you'll get that result in the Abhidhamma there's no such thing in the Abhidhamma it's all totally impersonal And uh, it's always taught or, or written um, mind moments and uh, mental formations and uh, prompted and unprompted and, and that type of thing. There's no person ever mentioned in the Abhidhamma. The word Abhidhamma means higher Dhamma and uh, it has um, in, in the Theravadan countries of Burma and Sri Lanka particularly in Burma, it is considered the epitome of the Buddha's teaching. In uh, Thailand, much less so, in fact, very little. And in Sri Lanka, it is, of course, considered to be um, the Buddha's words, but it is not that highly acclaimed as it is in Burma. Uh, That is now the reason why, if it is that, what one learns why the teaching is considered to be dry and dusty and uninspiring because that is dry, dusty and uninspiring. One needs a mathematical mind to read it, to uh, even go past the first two pages and to remember it. It needs a mind which is good in geometry. It gives um, complete pictures of, of the mind but in a geometrical, uh, there's lots of statistics in it. So, um, needless to say, I've never read it. Uh, there are certain things which one needs to know, which are in there. Uh, m- there's a basic minimum one ha- that one needs to know, but it is something which is very difficult to...
to remember unless you have that kind of inclination in the mind. It doesn't have all the stories of the suttas and all that in it. And one can fairly certainly assume that it was taken out of the discourses and compiled by the monks for the third council so that it was still included in the canon. Anything that was done after the third council was no longer included in the canon. That, so the canon consists of, um, I'm not sure how many volumes, there are 17,500 discourses, there are seven books of the Abhidhamma, and there are five books of the Vinaya, and there are three books of the verses of the enlightened monks and nuns, and then there are innumerable, I'm sorry, I can't give a number, of commentary and sub-commentary. So to read it all is um, a scholar's prerogative, and we have to thank the scholars who've been working on this for the past hundred years, a little more than a hundred years, translating that stuff. Because every bit of it was in Pali, which has, is a dead language, never appeared after the Buddha's um, after the Buddha's discourses and that was uh, written down never again it's a derivative of Sanskrit and but it has had much less um, appearance in Sanskrit Sanskrit was the learned people's language in India but Pali was like a hybrid of the um, the dialect that was spoken in the region where the Buddha lived. So whether it was actually called Pali or not, nobody knows. It's totally unknown whether it was really called that. Because he lived in the region of Magadha, and there was a dialect called Magadha. So it's a hybrid of those dialects. So it was very, the, the exposition of it was very uh, small area, where Sanskrit was all over India. But it is very easy to see that it's a derivative of it, and one which is easier to pronounce. It's, you can see that it's a dialect, because now, for instance, in Sanskrit it's called Nirvana. And you have to really watch what you're saying, Nirvana. But in Pali it's Nirvana. You can see it much quicker. You don't have to watch the Ruru. So you see Nirvana. It's a, it's a language, and that's why it doesn't also it doesn't have its own alphabet, because I one one knows or one can with, with certainty assume that it was just a spoken language, a dialect, and it only appears in the Buddha's Pali Canon. That's all. So the Theravadan teaching is also called the Pali Canon teaching, the teaching according to the Pali Canon. It can be said like that too and then it, it's a little more distinctive and uh, it is now still a state religion in Burma, Thailand and Sri Lanka and many of the countries that used to have it through their wars and their um, communist um, uh, inf- difficulties no longer have it I mean it was for instance the religion of Cambodia but it's no longer available, actually. I think a little bit of it's coming back, I've heard. But it's um, minor. So it is um, also interesting that in this day and age, with the um, wars that are raging in Asia, 
Buddhism is having a decline in Asia and it is having one could probably say so um, a rise in uh, in the West I mean there's more of it in the West now than there ever has been it's not uh, not so big yet but still but it's definitely a decline in Asia and the practice of it well the less said the better about that <laughs> it's a uh, very um, um, only pockets where it's being practiced even though it's a state religion so we could compare that to the decline of uh, Christianity and the practice of Christianity I mean it's a state religion I mean the whole country is people are when they write it on their senses I think they have to write down their religion I mean there's Christian but the practice of it is pockets so it's the same with that so it's speaking three Pali canon. That would be most indicative. The oldest one of the, all the different ones. And of course, sometimes it prides itself to be the only one that knows what it's all about. <laughs> but they all do that. <laughs> they all think that. And then was a, um, uh, which came from China to Japan, was in a revolt against this, against this one because then the monks in this tradition were becoming only study monks and no longer meditation monks and in Sri Lanka which is the country I know best uh, of these countries up to about 30 years ago meditation was practically unknown so it went on for a long time, study monks, but no meditation. And of course today, even still, minor meditation, more study. And so they, there was a, like an, a revolt against that. And they said, um, what's all this study? You've got to meditate and do it. So they didn't want to study, they wanted to meditate. But there's a very funny um, short discourse by... No, not by the Buddha, but it's in the Pali Canon, but by one of the um, Arahant monks of the Buddha's time, and it's only three, four lines, and in it it says, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, it says, um, there are those that are studying the uh, Dhamma, and then those that are meditating are saying, look at them, they're only studying, and then there are those who are meditating, and those who are studying are saying, look at these people walking up and down, only meditating. But in the discourse it then says, each one needs to do that, which he has his heart in it. So both sides are acclaimed to be right. Although the Buddha, this is not by the Buddha, it's by one of his monks, um, the Buddha said both is necessary. So he said that one has to have both. But naturally, uh, practice goes ahead of study that's of course you know at some if one has to choose between one and the other it should be the practice so what else yes I just follow on for a minute uh, I have um, I have been very little knowledge at all about the early canon getting to Sri Lanka and I'm just curious from what you said if Pali is such a regional language 
how would anybody in Sri Lanka have understood it? I mean, how does it actually um, get known down there? No. If you took it down there, nobody would understand what it was. Well, the monks who took it, they came from India and had been, uh, had been monks that had studied the Dhamma in Pali. And then they took this, um, they went to Sri Lanka to write it down. I don't remember whether the third Council of Arhans actually took place in Sri Lanka. I think it did. I'd have to look, look it up. But they were all disciples of disciples. And actually, one disciple of Sariputta was still alive because um, he was something like, I don't know, 130 or something at the time. So um, those that were disciples of disciples uh, had known the Dhamma in that language, but they didn't have an alphabet, so they used the Sri Lankan alphabet. And the Sri Lankan language is um, a very much a derivative of Pali. Yes. For instance, in Pali, the five precepts are called Pancha Sila. Pancha is five and Sila is morality. Well, a temple in Sri Lanka is a Pansila. That's where you take your five precepts. Pansila. You know. So it's a very much a derivative of Pali, the whole language. And uh, the whole country has that um, sort of as, as their culture. That's their culture. The, uh, whatever their culture, it is all derived from Buddhism. And so one would assume, and I mean, they were disciples of disciples, that they had Pali as their language. And since they brought that there, and in that, at that time, it's the same time when Mahinda, the son of King Asoka, came to Sri Lanka. He was actually sent by his father as an emissary. And Mahinda was a Buddhist monk and he was an Arahant. And uh, King Asoka was the first Indian king who became a Buddhist. And um, he was also the first Indian king that united India. Until then was all little kingdoms. That's why the Buddha's father was also called a king. I mean, he had a maybe an area size of Tasmania or something like that. Um, but then Asoka united. He was a warrior, a great warrior, and he united India. And then when he finally heard about the Buddha's teaching, then he didn't like to have any war anymore and became a very devout Buddhist and, sent, and his son became a monk. And he sent him to Sri Lanka where Mahinda converted the king there um, immediately to Buddhism, so the story goes. And uh, then, at the same time, the teaching came with that um, in, a, in a different group of travelers but with the monks over there so they wrote it down and then the language might have evolved from that because before that before Buddhism it was more like an aboriginal um, population when you see the pictures you can see it's more like an aboriginal population quite a nomadic and primitive population and then only it started to be more settled so maybe their language also evolved from that because you can see today uh, if you know Pali you can understand Sinhalese it's uh, very similar M much of it is similar 
I don't know if you can understand everything, but a lot. And sometimes when monks come from other countries that don't know Sinhalese, and of course the Sri Lankan monks, the older ones, don't know a word of English, they converse in Pali with each other. That's the only time that Pali is a living language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the only thing they've got in common. And that happens, for instance, when Burmese monks come, because the older Burmese monks all don't speak a word of English, and the older Sri Lankan monks don't speak a word of English, so they talk Pali to each other. Which is easy for the Sri Lankan monk. It's very easy to speak for him. And do the monks then translate the teaching into Sinhalese? Yes. Or the, um, or the well, that would have been quite a bit later, um, much, much later. In fact, I don't even know if all of it is translated. I don't think even everything is translated, even today much, much later, because it was considered, well, uh, maybe one could even compare that to the Latin in the Catholic Church. It was retained in that, because the monks had a very special position, so they also had the special language, so they had special knowledge, and if you wanted to know what they were saying, well, you had to ask them, you know. It wasn't for everybody. And to this day, when the Sri Lankan monks give a sermon, which is a, uh, a discourse, they use such a highfalutin Sinhalese that the ordinary people don't understand a word of it. Not a word. And there's only a few that um, did away with that, and they became extremely popular. And one of them in particular, but he died. And um, some, I suppose, don't do it. But it is well known that the ordinary population cannot understand the uh, Dhamma exposition. First of all, it contains a lot of Pali, which they have not got the linguistic skills to connect. They don't connect Panchasila to Pansala. I mean, I can immediately connect that, but they can't. It's too, it's too far apart. It doesn't sound the same. I mean, if I speak Sinhalese to them, they can't even understand it because I don't sound like they do. You know, so that linguistic skill is lacking, and also the words that the, they use are not everyday words. It's a third language. There are three languages in singular. One is spoken, one is written, and one is that. So those people who were educated under the colonial system, all in the English language, don't understand anything. Not a word. <laughs> they have to listen to an English discourse. Once they've learned it in English, then they can make out what is being said in Sinhalese also. So the language evolved a great deal out of that, but it was kept in Pali, and it's only very, I think it might be in this century that they've actually been translating. And of course, into the English language, it was translated about 100 years ago. It's about 110 now, 110 years ago, by Professor Rice Davis, who was one of the um, from the British colonial service, one of the um, governors in India, and uh, because he was very interested in old uh, ancient languages, he by chance found um, some books in this language that nobody knew what it was. So he took it home and started, you know, with his Sanskrit uh, knowledge, started translating. And then he died, and then his wife carried on, and the Polytech Society was um, founded, and his wife was a devout Catholic. 
and um, she translated this stuff uh, with a Catholic background so you can imagine that not everything is quite correct in fact she calls the jhanas trances you know I mean it's, it's, you know, anybody's ever done a jhana knows it's not a trance um, but this is just one example so um, now in the last 20-25 years there's a constant retranslation and it becomes more and more our modern language that one can more and more relate to so there are always new translation and the Polytech Society brings them out and the Buddhist Publication Society and in German we don't have the whole Polycan we've only got partial and I'm trying to um, get the English, the good English, the new English translation to be translated into German which is quite possible so that the German language also happened because people in Germany also have been at this for the past hundred years and also wrongly translated so it's a matter of um, you see because it gets wrongly translated now that doesn't mean that the person is stupid who's doing that not at all they may be extremely good scholars but being a dead language how do you know what it means you know it's only a matter of first conjecture then it's a matter of practice well the scholar hasn't got time to practice and the practitioner hasn't got time to translate so they've got to get together somewhere along the line and uh, so over the years now there have been so many practitioners who have been um, you know complaining about the wrong translation so that the new scholars that are on deck now are paying attention and us changing some of the old translations because they don't very often don't make sense so it's quite an interesting uh, scholastic uh, aspect also very interesting and we have great um, cause for gratitude to the scholars because if they weren't there to do this for us we'd all have to learn Pali before we could sit down to meditate so we have a very great deal to thank for. So what else? Hmm? Yeah. Is it uh, good to make the uh, maybe the first or second jhana before you go to sleep when you are laying down, and hmm. or is it? Sure. It's excellent. 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 <laughs> yes, it's excellent. In fact, I think you can't do anything better when one hasn't got anything to do. I mean, it's, um, you know, when you have to wait somewhere or anything, it's an excellent thing to do. Excellent. I mean, you're sure to fall asleep doing it lying down. Anybody who has difficulty falling asleep, if they can do first or second jhana or both, it's going to make them fall asleep immediately because if you sit down and uh, lie down, it has that same connotation of, you know, going away with the mind. Yeah, it's a good idea. And uh, uh, to meditate when you wake up in the night, to, to make meditation is it good? Oh, excellent. Excellent. But you must wait till you're fully awake. Uh, which means getting up, going to the toilet, washing your face, and then sitting down. And I, that's the procedure I use. Mm. First thing is to go to the toilet. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> and then wash my face with cold water. 
You can't do anything better than that. I mean, it's the best thing one can do. Anything else on your paper? Yes. Um, uh, you said that, uh, that through very strong gear, it is possible that or some people ha have uh, managed this uh, to, to get the uh, six or seven, uh, fifth or sixth, even to the fifth or sixth chana. To to very strong what? To strong strong gear. Greed. Greed. <laughs> um, doesn't sound right. You sure it's what I said? Was I gesagt haben? Doesn't sound right. <laughs> doesn't sound right. No. Most people have one pointed greed. <laughs> when it arises, it usually gets to be one pointed. I want that. Um, I think maybe something like because no I, I know what I let me put it this way I know what I should have said right I don't know what I said but I know what I should have said that it is quite possible to direct your mind to going to fifths and sixths you don't have to wait till it happens spontaneously out of the sky wherever you think it comes from if you can direct the mind to do this and when you direct the mind, you certainly have, well, I don't, wouldn't call it greed. You have a, well, you have a direction, you have a determination um, to go to that point. You make up your mind to do this. I don't know that greed is the right word for that. <laughs> um, yes. Grief. 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 That's what you said. Ah, grief. Ah, grief. Oh, sorry. What's grief. Wrong grief is is um, a trauer. Yeah. Then what's wrong? Ah, uh -huh. grief. Uh, so great grief. To go to fifth and six. Why fifth and six? You said that sometimes people have told you that many years back, maybe they had an experience of that because. Yes. 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 Um. That's right. Um. That's right. Um. They, yes. That's it. Grief. <laughs> grief it's an effort thing <laughs> um, yes that's right <laughs> yeah well the lingu linguistics <laughs> um, that's correct because the grief was so great that there was absolute one-pointedness in the mind trying to get out of that grief not to remain in it because it was almost unbearable emotionally and this is what I, that one person has had. And because of this, there was such an um, energy in the mind to leave this state of being, of being so grief-stricken that spontaneously fifth or even sixth jhana came without one, two, three, four. And no, not knowing anything what it was. May it also happen that stream entrance can happen. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. By complete determination, I'm going to get out of this. Mm. And uh, that person, I don't think, had ever meditated, who was telling me that, before that. Yeah, I've uh, heard this too. Yes. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and such an, uh, I mean, an almost unbearable emotional uh, grief. Mm. Yeah. Grief, that's it.
<laughs> okay, what else? Anything else? You said that um, after a person becomes stream that um, the next path moment comes just like an apple planted in a tree. That you couldn't, if I that wrong, that you couldn't hurry it. Any past moment comes like an apple ripening on the tree, not only the next one. Any of them. So that's the same for the first time. Yep. All of them. If you're ready for it, you'll do it. But you can make yourself ready by uh, pulling out the weeds around this tree, by watering it and by fertilizing it, doing the best you can to make this thing grow well. And as it grows well, because if it's stunted, it won't even produce apples. Never mind having them ripen. I mean, a stunted tree doesn't have even an apple on it. But then if you really look after this tree and do everything you can for it, then the thing will ripen. And you make sure that the sun hits it. You know, so it will ripen. Any of the past moments are a ripening process, which you have to bring about through your cultivation. And then as it, when another apple ripens for a second one, third one, and fourth one. But what I mainly was concerned with is to say that you can't say, please stay on the tree. Don't write them. Because there's a school of thought that thinks you can. So that following generations can always admire this apple. Doesn't work. That's what I was mostly concerned with. If it's ripe, it falls off. And that happens for every person. Exactly. And just for the, for the admiration of following generations, that is not the reason why this apple will stay on the tree. But the enlightenment factor remains in the universal consciousness. And whoever wants to can have access to it. Because it's all now. It's not past, present, future. So enlightenment consciousness exists. And there's no need to say, please, apple, don't fall off the tree. In fact, it's much better if it does fall off the tree, because that's the enlightenment consciousness. That's, that's the same story with the hen sitting on the egg. But she's only getting chickens. No, if a hen is sitting on the egg. <laughs> oh, they will, she will get chickens, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If she stays sitting there, she'll come out. That's right. <laughs> because there's the other story that she sits three weeks, but all she ever gets is chickens. So it isn't the length of time that you sit. I <laughs> didn't, but you're right. <laughs> but that's right. I mean, if she sits there, that's... We, there's yeah. a sutta about this. About the, the hand sitting on the eggs, yes. That, that means if you practice, keep practicing, it's just got to happen. It's just that, you know, on the way to it happening, there's so many pitfalls. There's all the emotional junk that keeps creeping in. Uh, one is, I'm uh, poor little me, I can't do it. Great little me, I've already done it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's, that's the emotional junk. Or somebody's got to help me, or I don't want to see anybody. I mean, anything. And that's one thing that creeps in. Then creeps in the doubt. And maybe I should do something else. And uh, all these things are all blockages. Because the practice itself, if one just keeps on going, there's no way it's not going to bring fruit. It's a matter of time. You know. Some trees or apples ripen faster, others take longer. That's all. Mm. 
It's just a matter of time. Anybody can do it. But not anybody will. That's the problem. One can, but one won't. One has to leave a lot of junk behind. Mental junk. That has to be left behind. A lot of that. And eventually one does. Somehow. So what else? Anything else in those bits of paper there? Yes. I have a, a question regarding compassion and pity. I would think these children, their parents. I don't find it very hard to find uh, compassion for children. But for the parents, it would be really, it's very difficult to feel compassionate. So, to come back to what you were doing, do it again. Mm-hmm. And stay with it. Right? And you've got the, now you've got a trigger. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to work. Okay. That's fine. Sorry, it was the last, last day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, and try it again, no? Mm-hmm. And it's not the feeling that goes away, it's the concentration. And it's also the mind saying, ah, there it is. And uh, so, tell the mind beforehand not to say anything. You know, not to pay any attention. You're just going to do it. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Just doing it. But it worked for that much. Mm. That's good. That's very good. So, anything else? Yes. You said for the journal that uh, the session should be not too short and not too long. Mm. So, how long is a good To sit. For sitting, how long? And you said for the time of the journal. Oh. Oh, I see for it. Well, the first journal you can just do five minutes. It's not important. Second journal should be... Depends. If, if you're more uh, inclined towards the peacefulness, and the joy has already taken, it's already established well, it doesn't have to stay long either. I mean, well, yes, 15 minutes or something like that. But the peacefulness, no limit. If you get to the fourth jhana, there's no limit. It depends what you want to do. If you want to sit two hours, it's fine. If you want to sit one hour, it's fine. Whatever. First one is nothing. Five minutes is enough. And second one, well, 20 minutes maybe. Half an hour is all right too. But fourth one, no, no, no limit. Depending on uh, how much one has time or inclination. The more one has of that, the, the more the mind uh, has energy. So fourth one. Or third one also, no limit. Only limit is only one's own practical considerations, how much time one has, how long one can, you know, sit without noises starting or something like that. I understood that you said that to stay too long was not useful for the inside. Talking about fifth and sixth, you said before, if you want to know, you can make a determination before you put the mind here, because once you leave here, the mind... Oh, you should do that for any jhana. If one becomes master of the jhana, one makes a time uh, determination beforehand because then you don't have to worry about anything, you know, whether you have time or not time, any of the jhanas. 
um, and say, well, I want to stay half an hour, and then you come out after half an hour. And in fifth and sixth, uh, well, in fourth also. If you're really in the fourth, you wouldn't know how long you've been in there. It might have been in there half an hour and takes two, it feels like two minutes. So if one becomes master of the jhanas, one makes a determination beforehand. And that applies to all of them. The first one is not uh, important to stay. The others are all important enough, and especially from third onwards, it's imp- any time what one can give to it. And then afterwards is a time for the insight. So if one only has one hour's time, one gives uh, maybe a three-quarter hour for doing the jhanas and quarter hour for insight, half an hour and half an hour, whatever. But if one is very much inclined to think a lot, one should give more time for the jhanas. And uh, if, uh, if one, um, you know, the, the jhanas help the mind to become clear and uh, pure, purified, so that the insight becomes much easier. So making up one's mind beforehand is, uh, is uh, very helpful. Well, then one knows exactly what one's doing. And what we call the experience, this is the insight. Not necessarily. Sure. Anything can be an experience. You bump your foot on a stone, it's an experience. You know it hurts. I mean, kids have those experiences, that's how they learn. Anything that you feel is an experience. And then knowing what it is, that the understanding of it, I mean, you know, if, you, if a child burns his head, hand on a stove, that's an experience. It hurts. But when he knows that it's from the stove, then it's an understood experience and he won't put his hand on anymore. Well, you can have an experience of jhana and understand this is force, was force jhana. And this was an experience where I was totally peaceful. This is an experience which is impermanent just like everything else. That's the understood experience. And an insight is also an experience, certainly. And then when that is an... when it is um, insight, one would assume that it's an understood experience uh, Anyway, because otherwise it's not inside. Yeah, it's, a, it's an arising of, of, of knowing. Then it's inside. So it has the understood experience with it immediately. But with, uh, with other experiences, it's not um, necessarily so. Anything else? Could you say in the fourth jhana there is another quality besides um, equanimity, like giving in? To get in there. Yeah, to get in I should bring a dictionary with me. Yeah. <laughs> Surrender. Ah, yeah. Surrender. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> make it a Buddhist song. <laughs> um, yes, uh, that is necessary to get in there. 
But equanimity, I don't like that explanation at all. You see, these are all translations, and I very often don't agree with them, because it's not that word that's being used, actually. Upeka is equanimity, and that word is not being used. Um, and I don't agree with it that that's what you feel. I, I say that after you fed it, you have equanimity. But I say that in the fourth jhana, the experience is one of a a deep, almost um, buried stillness. That would be what I would say it is. And that equanimity, equanimity is not, equanimity is an even-mindedness in English. And uh, so, yes, of course, but that's what you get from it. Even-mindedness is not what you experience in the first year. I fully disagree with that translation. And uh, which is why they, the translations are constantly being changed. If anybody listens to you, Vicky Bodhi didn't used to listen, he now does. So. <laughs> well, also the well gives that. Yes. Symbolizes the yes. Yeah. yes, exactly. And there's no equanimity in sitting at the bottom of a well. <laughs> <laughs> it's being gone, that's it. You know, completely gone, that's what it is. So it's a an, it's an deep, deep stillness. It's so still that one hardly knows that it's still. And the observer is so remo- um, has been so um, made so small that one only knows that he was there, he or she, when one comes out again of this fourth jhana and recognizes the fact that one has experienced stillness. Then one knows there was an observer which is the difference between the jhana, I said that already, and the still point. Because the still point you can't explain because there's no observer. And so that is, and I, I, don't, I don't like the word equanimity for the first jhana. I keep using it because it's in all the books, but I don't agree with it. I don't have to. use any mental picture like not only well, but also perhaps jumping from the mountain as long as this surrendering is in it. Yeah, jumping from one is a bit active, too much activity. <laughs> Gliding down maybe more. <laughs> um, yes, um, the jumping is not so good because, because if you go to the fourth when you've been in the third, and from the third to the fourth, it's a gliding down. It's not a jump, you know. Yes, you don't have to use well. I mean, that's only an idea from me. <laughs> it's uh, not a, not, nothing uh, s- sacred about it. Um, what can we say? Going down there? Going down in the lift, you know, lifting the building with no words on, going down fast. I don't like that one at all. No, wouldn't work. That doesn't work. No. It's too technological. No, it's, it's got to... You can, yes, you can do... Use the ocean. Being in the ocean, uh, only with your body, and up to here, and then going into the ocean and being under it, drowning in it. That is, could be used. Uh, water is a very common... A, symbol, a symbolism for mystical experiences. Very, very common. It's being used by... Every mystic uses it somewhere along the line. 
water because it has so many qualities which are useful. It's pure, it's flowing, you can drown in it, it's refreshing, so uh, it, it's very useful, so it's used all the time. And it's uh, also um, like in a fountain, it's uh, sparkling, uh, you can use it for many things. So I, I like the well or the ocean. I don't like the lift at all, no. <laughs> And I don't like the mountain either. But you can use it. If you like it, you're welcome. <laughs> I personally don't. <laughs> Anything else? Anybody else have little uh, written notes? No? I see all sorts of books, but nobody's got any notes on them, huh? Notes. Hmm. I, um, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure we've all got your books, and certainly I haven't been reading this. Are there some other books that you might recommend to sort of help us along the way? Uh, you mean for meditation? Well, the best book on mindfulness is The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by Nana Pranikatira. It's the best book on mindfulness. It's got everything in it. And then there is also, I think, a commentary to it, which he has also written. Nana Pranika. N-Y-A-N-A-P-O-N-I-K-A And you can get it from Ryder. It's published by Ryder and Company. I don't know whether it's still in print. It's an English publisher. Is it still in print from Ryder, though? Well, it's still in print in Edger and Sydney. I don't know whether it's really Ryder. Yeah, because... Uh, that's the best book on mindfulness. And it's so fat and so many things in it, you can read it for years and still learn something from it. I don't know that it has exactly the meditation instruction, but the mindfulness as such is so helpful that it uh, probably would also help with the meditation. It's a commentary to that book. Is it the commentary? Yeah. Mm. Yes, it's thin. Uh, it's much thinner. Mm. It's a commentary on that one. Yeah. It's also useful, very useful. It's in German. It's only in German. That was brought out in Switzerland, it's only in German. But the heart of Buddhist meditation was originally English, and then only after in German. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you have to go, it's nine thirty. Yeah. If you want to read the sutras, what would you read that thing? If you want to read the sutras, what would you read that What would you read? If you want to read the suttas, yes. you mean which suttas? Yes. For beginners. <laughs> the suttas are not for beginners. <laughs> all, all the suttas are suttas. There is no suttas for beginners. Is there a book that there may know? Many books. Many, many books. Um, I don't know. You'd ha- I think the only way you can get the suttas 
would be from the Buddhist Publication Society. Uh, the Polytech Society extremely expensive, much too expensive, and uh, otherwise I don't know that the suttas would be available. There is one by wisdom, the Digha Nikaya, and that's the one I wouldn't read because it's, uh, this particular sutta is in the Digha Nikaya, but the rest of the Digha Nikaya is not that um, much for practice. So I, I, the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy, you can get the book list from them. And from that book list you can see probably quite easily which are the suttas. And if you can't see it, then, then, say, then write to them and ask them which are the suttas. And they're inexpensive. I mean, comparative to any other books that you can buy in the West. You know? Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. So, anything else? Um, I have a question. You said when you were talking about the fear which can arouse when you sort of advance in your practice, that strong fear. That can arise, yes, yes, yes. yes. Sometimes people, that's when you need a teacher, and sometimes people then find out that they thought they had a teacher but really don't have one. Did I say that? Something like that. I understood it. People have a teacher, but they're not open to the teacher. They can't take advantage of the teacher. That's right. Oh. Go to the top of the class. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They might, they might have a teacher, but they don't go and, and ask them and don't take advantage because they don't have the, the trust, the confidence, and the devotion. The people's, people's biggest mistake that they make in this kind of thing is... Well, not the biggest. One of the mistakes, right? One of the mistakes people make is instead of sitting there and practicing, they're um, criticizing the teacher. You know why the people do that? Because it gets them out of practicing. You know? Then you don't have to practice because the teacher doesn't know. I mean, why should I practice? And the teacher does this and the teacher does that. So why should I practice? Criticizing the teacher is one of, I mean, it's a popular pastime because it's very easy, because it's one, and there are a lot of other people there, so we have one person to criticize, very easy. And um, then it gives a justification for not practicing. So when you come, when you have actually practiced to the point where the fear comes, and you've done that, you're not going to go to the teacher and take his his or her word for it. You know, they'll just think, oh, yeah, no good. The whole thing is no good. Teacher's no good, practice no good, everything's no good, I'll go home. So that happens more frequently than not. And that that whole, uh, that is one of the pitfalls. As I was saying earlier, you know, that we can at all go that pathway, but there are so many things that would come in the way, and that's one of them. Could it be that one trusts the teacher up to that point and then... Mm-hmm. Yes, also happens. But that's a time when you have to talk to the teacher. If you do, everything goes fine. And if you don't, then the mind says, such rubbish. Who wants this? I've got enough to come, I'm not going to get any more. You know, yes, of course, the teacher can at that time, you can, and particularly so if there hasn't been that full acceptance and devotion 
to just the way it is. But there's always been that niggling thing, oh, there must be somebody better. You know? <laughs> and then, of course, the whole thing breaks down. But that is the point where, where it easily happens. And then, very unfortunate. And then also another thing happens, not only that you stop practicing, that also happens, of course, but another thing is that you may con- think you're continuing to practice and going totally the wrong way. Now, we ha- I ha- also have an experience with somebody like that. Comes to that point, quite strong, no confidence, no devotion, no respect, no gratitude, so no dis- uh, help from the teacher's side, and wants to continue to practice, but does it on a, on a level which will never amount to anything, the wrong way. One can practice the wrong way. One can do anything the wrong way. I mean, even practice it. So uh, that is a time when one really has to sort of go maybe against one's instincts to overcome that. So, anything else? Yeah. Uh, do you think that criticism of the teacher comes up in the mind? I've discovered in myself over the years with meditating that until you actually sit down, you've got that ball. Very few people have got any real awareness of just how much time they spend in criticizing other people. <laughs> you know, there's this incessant criticism going on <laughs> everybody all of the time. Hmm. And then when you sit in meditation, the only person really, other than the people who are wriggling around you in the room, hmm. is the teacher. You know, so you, you've only got those, you've got the pain to focus on, yes. or somebody moving, yeah. or blowing the nose, or whatever having to do, or the teacher. Yeah. Other than that, there's really nothing else to criticize. Yes, right. So that's, that's where your mind tends to go to. Sure. It's a very human thing, but through the practice one one is able to recognize that and this is one of the stumbling blocks and this is why people go from this one to that one to the next one and nothing happens you know nothing absolutely nothing and then they find something which is an emotional outlet and they think ah now I've got it but all of this is an emotional outlet you know so um, if one sees in oneself that Every one of us has this tendency to criticize, just as you say. And if we see that, then, of course, we are able to stop it. But if we don't see it, if we believe it, then we won't stop it. Because then we are quite happy to continue with that, you know, criticism. And this is another thing also, uh, you were mentioning, you know, like examples which are not um, inspiring I mean, you know, people who've been practicing and then nothing happens and that type of thing. But, again, that's looking outside. I mean, the Buddha's own cousin, who was a monk, as long as the Buddha, or almost as long, Devadatta, tried to kill the Buddha, to get a hold of the Sangha, to be the head of the Sangha, Three times he tried to kill him. He's a monk and uh, his own cousin practicing day in and day out under the Buddha. So, does that make the Buddha's teaching wrong? Or does it? Surely not. Devadatta is the name. One should remember that. 
some teachers they are not trustworthy. Of course they are. That that's quite true. Um, but on the other hand, certainly there are teachers that are not trustworthy because they do stupid things. But but, but and this is the interesting part, and now I think one can say it because a man is dead. Shogyam Trungpa was a person, a lama, uh, not a monk, a lama, um, who did very crazy things. And yet, he taught people wonderfully well. One of my best friends is a nun who was trained by him. And she knew all the crazy things he was doing. And she loved him dearly because everything she knows he taught her. And she knows, and she runs a, a monastery. She's the head of a monastery, and she knows a lot. And she has practiced well. And yet, I mean, if you say he was, that person wasn't trustworthy. I don't, I don't think of him as not being trustworthy. I didn't know anything about him. But I, I only know what I read in the newspapers. Yeah. I but, I mean, there are some teachers that take advantage of their students, I think. Oh, sure. represent themselves to know something, and then they don't, and they can't deal with the situations, and put your confidence in them. Yes, but well, then they don't teach you anything, so then, of course, you have to go away. But this man's behavior was not exemplary, and it was not a model. It was, uh, I mean, I only know what I read in the newspapers. I have never met him. <laughs> but I, I mean, it was all over the newspapers in America. Anybody could read it, you know. So, um, and yet, he taught wonderfully well, and his books are excellent. I've read these books, I and mean, not all, but what I've read is wonderful. Really true. And, um, and my friend, Pema, you know, she has learned. She's very good. You know, she has learned a lot. And so... To criticize that man would have been so simple. I mean, everybody did it anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was very easy to criticize him because he did all the wrong things. And uh, as far as, you know, that goes, that was what one expects, you know, people to do. And yet, he helped many people. So, this is an extreme case, a very extreme case. And he had a lot of compassion, it seems, that was, I was told, and was very, very kind and very um, intuitive with people, you know. And yet in his personal life, well, none of us would want to live like that, you know, the way his personal life went. And uh, that's not slandering him. First of all, he's dead and saying he was in all the newspapers, so it's nothing, you know, that, no, that is not known. Um, and yet all the people who were taught by him have the greatest love for him. So this is, uh, I think, maybe an example uh, that our judgmental mind is a hindrance. And especially now in that case, maybe, well, even there it's not justified. But if it's even less than that, I mean, it's totally unjustifiable because our own pathway is blocked. That's, that's a problem. The pathway, our own pathway is blocked because the judgmental mind always stands in the way. The more judgments, judgments we make, the less we can go. The judgments are the blockages. If we just let it happen, just flow with it, the mind will go there eventually, if it's enough quiet. So if we see ourselves as uh, with all these judgments in the mind, we realize it's... I mean, everybody's got them. 
It's not blameworthy. It's human. But we can change it. Yeah. And this comes because he had a bad karma or because he had not a, a high realization? How do I know? I have no idea. I have no idea. I would say it to Kim because he didn't have any self-discipline. <laughs> that would make it more sensible, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, you say, for example, that a stream enter can not break the present. Hmm. Well, I mean, I have no idea whether he was a stream enter. I didn't say that. The Buddha said that. I have no idea whether he was a stream enter. I never met the man. I have no idea. I've read his books. But I know that enormous criticism was leveled at him uh, from all sides for his... Uh, um, well, not exemplary behavior in his own personal life, which is always concerning his own personal life. And um, yet he, his books were excellent and his teaching was very good. Apparently, well, the books came out of his teaching, so it must have been a very good teaching because the books were... And easily understandable. He didn't beat around the bush. It was straightforward. Yeah. Um, meditation and action is one, and... Uh, Spiritual materialism, huh? Cutting through spiritual materialism, yes. Very good. Excellent. And then the others I haven't read. That's a warrior. Yes, I haven't read that. But, uh, so that's uh, that's an example where the critical, judgmental mind uh, should uh, definitely uh, not be used. And so we can see that in lesser cases, um, the criticism and the judgment is a blockage. Yes. But uh, when you say the critical and the judgmental mind shouldn't be used, I think that you'd modify that in a way by saying as far as the teaching is concerned. I mean, you wouldn't use his personal life as if if you knew that that was his personal life. Um, you would have to make up your own mind about your own and, s- and see that his personal life wasn't one that you would want to follow. Certainly, but you do, the, of course. Um, but you wouldn't want, to, you don't have to be judgmental and say, well, he's bad because he's doing that. To just say, well, this is a kind of thing I don't want to do because I don't think it's going to help me in any way. And then leave it entirely open to doubt what he's doing, why he's doing it, and all the rest of it, because that's his business. Let him be, you know. So naturally, you make up your mind for yourself, but you don't condemn the person, you know. But it's not so easy to uh, have confidence, complete confidence, then in this person, if he does not follow his own teaching. Yes, of course it's difficult, naturally. So... It's an extreme example. It's very extreme. I think his example is extremely extreme. It's a very, really way out because it's such good teaching and such strange behavior. So it's a, the example is extreme. But it's a, a, also the thing is that the teaching of the Dhamma is not... So we we don't have so much access to it. So when when we have the opportunity, maybe it is always one should always look at the Dhamma more. Like in his case, would have been 
you know, just to look at the Dhamma he was teaching and forget about what else he's doing. If nobody got hurt and somebody got hurt, that's a different story then because then you are in danger also of being hurt. And that is what you were having in mind, I think. The not trustworthy where you could get hurt. Well, then you have to get out of the way. You You have to protect yourself. And, of course, another thing that one has to protect oneself against, which is also an interesting fact, and the Buddha did say that, and it's a nice uh, discourse where he says one has to protect oneself from situations where one is falling into danger. Now, the danger is physical, but also the danger of negativity which arises. So he gives examples examples where to where to protect oneself and the examples don't apply to us but we have to we can use them one should get out of the way of wild elephants because that's very dangerous one should get not entangled in a in a jungle thicket one should get out of the way of bad men bad people um, robbers and such people uh, so, which is physically dangerous in the first place, but it is also mentally dangerous because immediately, of course, not only fear but rejection arises. So, if one knows that in a certain situation the rejection arises again and again, one can't feel at ease, well then one should get out of the way. So, one doesn't have to, um, you know, stand every situation. And that, I think, is a very important thing also to know, that one tries one's best up to as far as one can do it. So you see, your prophecy was quite wrong. You prophesied that nobody was going to have any questions. (laughs) (laughs) False prophets. (laughs) Any other questions? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Let all the thoughts, all the ideas, all the likes and the dislikes, all the hopes and the plans, all the memories, let it all float away. Like clouds in the sky being dispersed by the wind, so that there is then a cloudless sky 
cloudless heart and mind. Spacious, without any obstructions. Purity in it. Touch your heart substance and recognize that it is nothing but love that is the heart substance unencumbered by thoughts and ideas touch it come aware of it everybody has it it's love warmth Surrender. Let these feelings permeate you, surround you. And now let this warmth and love which is your heart substance reach out to the person nearest you. Let it reach that person's heart. Now, let it reach out to everybody here. The warmth and the love, which are the natural qualities of the heart when the heart is unencumbered. Let it reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone with warmth and love. Now let it reach out to those people that are closest to you. Give them the whole of your heart. 
totally flowing, totally surrendering. Now reach out to all your friends. Let them have the whole of your heart with all its love and warmth. Now reach out to the people who are part of your life, whether you know them well or not. Neighbors, colleagues, fellow travelers. Fill them with the love and warmth from your heart, giving them all that your heart contains. Think of anyone with whom you have difficulties. Whom you find difficult to love or towards whom you are quite indifferent. Let that heart quality and substance reach out to that person too. Filling him or her with your love, your compassion, all that your heart contains.
open your heart as wide as you can let its quality of love flow out of it reaching out to the people that are near around here and then further away there's nothing else in one's heart except love let it go to people as far as the strength of your love will carry Now put your attention back on yourself. Now recognize the power of love to give peace 